1988, Teddy Riley is headlining the Apollo as part of God. But in 1973, he's just a five-year-old kid growing up in Harlem, and he's sick with the flu. Tonight, his Auntie Liz has a special treat for Teddy, a treat so exciting it makes his flu symptoms magically vanish. My first concert, singing Gladys Knight, at the Apollo. Teddy lives just a few blocks away from the Apollo, but he's never been inside, and he cannot wait to go. Seeing a show at the Apollo would be a thrill for any kid. But for Teddy, it's more than that. Because even at just five years old, he already lives for music. What's the only thing outside of playing with my friends and being in the streets? It was music. There wasn't anything else that interests me. There's a family story that at eight months old, Teddy climbed on top of the record player and spun around on it, trying to figure out where the sound was coming from. As he walks into the Apollo lobby, Teddy looks around wide-eyed, taking it all in. The plush maroon carpet and glittering chandeliers the grown-ups all dressed to the nines for a night on the town. And the theater's famous mural depicting all the legends who've performed here. Smokey Robinson, Nina Simone, James Brown. Teddy's got a good seat right in the front row. He settles back into the plush red chair. Then the curtain comes up. She is Gladys Knight, one of Motown's biggest stars, looking stunning in a blue sequin dress. He can't take his eyes off her. And then the unimaginable happens. That night I was picked up on the stage by Gladys, singing Neither One of Us. That's right. Five-year-old Teddy Riley is on stage at the Apollo. He looks out at the cheering audience, then up at Gladys... She's singing the song right to him. Her long black hair haloed by the stage lights. After the show, Teddy and Auntie Liz walk back to his home in the St. Nick Projects. And my auntie said to me, so now that you've seen Gladys Knight, who's a superstar, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a star. Look, I realize that's the kind of thing any starstruck kid might say. But coming from Teddy, it actually means it. Because I knew I couldn't be a superstar right away. So I said, I want to be a star. So I could be half of you know, what Gladys Knight was and still is today. That sweet little kid up on stage at the Apollo has talent to burn. In fact, Teddy's musical talent and his drive are going to attract all kinds of people to him, people claiming they can help him, but they just want a piece of that magic. And Teddy, who's going to have to learn fast who's there to help him and who isn't.
There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. From Wondery and Universal Music Group, I'm Taraji P. Henson, and this is Jack. Can you Jack swing? Yes, it's something funky that you can swing. All you gotta do is come on and sing. One, two, three. I made you Jack swing. After Guy's hit performance at the Apollo, the group is on the brink of becoming one of the hottest acts in R&B. The influential newspaper, The Village Voice, has a cover story about a new sound and music they call New Jack Swing. But it's not the whole band on the cover. Nope, it's only Teddy. And this is episode three in our six-part series, The Golden Child. To understand Teddy Riley, you need to understand where he came from. Barry Michael Cooper wrote that cover story on Teddy Riley, and he grew up in Harlem in the 70s. Harlem was a place during that time, it was a unique experience. Like on a Saturday, I can get up early in the morning and go to the Schomburg Library on 135th Street, read about James Baldwin, you know, Wallace Berry, all the Harlem Renaissance. And then from there, I could go to the Rucker Playground on 155th Street and 8th Avenue and watch Julius Dr. J. Irving, Nate Archibald, Dave Cowens from the Celtics play ball. And that night, I could go to the Apollo and see Temptations and Blue Magic. I don't know too many people that had that kind of cultural, mind-blowing experience. That's something growing up in Harlem afforded me. Just staying alive, cause in the ghetto, But it could also be a tough place to live. Marsha McClurkin came to Harlem in the early 80s, an aspiring 17-year-old singer moving up from a tiny town in South Carolina. The drug of choice during that time was angel dust. So there was a lot of craziness going on in Harlem during that time. But it was also exciting. Her small town had just four stoplights. In Harlem? There was just continuous uh, movement. Like, there was a nightlife like you wouldn't believe. Every other avenue had their own after-hours spot, which meant, like, you can go to a club in any part of the city, but after the clubs close, where do you go? So they would have all of these after-hours spots in Harlem. And that's where Marsha goes looking for work. I actually went along 125th Street pretty much asking, like, you know, do they have singers, you know, or, or are they looking for a singer? 
Marsha tries the baby grand with its distinctive piano keyboard facade, the Celebrity Club, a popular spot with the DJs, and the Linux Lounge, a legendary hole in the wall where Billie Holiday once sang. But none of them will hire her. So she ends up at a more unassuming joint, a little speakeasy-style bar next to Dapper Dan's, a famous men's clothing store. It's called The Pit Stop. It had a bar, it had a dance floor, and then it had an upstairs area that was pretty much restricted. So it was all hollowed out with all these secret rooms and all sorts of, let's say, meetings would be going on there. Marsha tries not to pay too much attention to those so-called meetings. She just wants to sing and make some money doing it. So the Pit Stop has a talent show. She gets to show what she can do. If I were your woman and you were my man, there'll be no other woman. That type of thing. (laughs) And she wins. Soon enough, she's a featured singer with the Pit Stop House Band. Most of the time, we had different keyboard players that would come in. One night, when Marsha arrives for her set, the pit stop is really jumping. Whole bunch of people crammed in, it's all sweaty. <laughs> people crammed in on this dance floor dancing. There's a lot of drinking going on back then, a lot of drugging. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it was wild, it was a wild time. In the midst of all this, Marsha sees a kid at the keyboard sitting on a phone book. I was like, how old are you? And he started laughing and told me how old he was and I think it's like 14. It's 14-year-old Teddy Riley. He's already playing the clubs and Marsha forms an immediate connection with Teddy. Neither one of us were old enough. I think you had to be at least 21 to be in the club and we both were in our teens. Marsha likes Teddy right away. It's the beginning of a long friendship. Oh, he was adorable. <laughs> He's always just 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 cute. <laughs> cute, friendly, but he was very he was friendly but shy. He didn't talk a lot, you know, but very very talented. You can see even back then that he was very talented on the keyboard. In fact, you almost never see Teddy without a portable keyboard under his arm. I used to be the beatbox kid back in the projects. Curacell was like this small keyboard and it had black keys on this end, but the black keys were like the uh, the mechanism to start the beat. So when you hit that black key, it would go. And when you play the chords on this side, the chords would follow like an arpeggiator. So it was like. So it was dope. Teddy and his Curacao are a hit. This is years before hip-hop is all over the radio. It's just a local phenomenon in parks, playgrounds, and block parties around Harlem and the Bronx. Just two turntables and a microphone, a DJ cutting up classic funk and soul records, an MC spitting rhymes, and sometimes there's teenage Teddy on his odd little electronic keyboard. So the DJs would actually scratch to me playing that Curacao. And almost like I was the get-in-where-you-fit-in kid. And Daddy seems to fit in everywhere. He started in the church, a place called Little Flower Baptist Church. I think it was on 8th Avenue and 131st, 132nd Street. 
started playing keyboards. So, Teddy's getting gospel from the church, soul and Motown from the after-hours clubs, and hip-hop from the parks and block parties. Teddy's absorbing it all. And then, one day, when Teddy is 14 years old, he gets to experience something new, something that will bring all those elements together. Royal Bayan, one-time guitar player and backup singer for Cool in the Gang, brings Teddy into a professional recording studio. I just felt that I wanted him to see what it felt like to sit in that seat where the engineer was at. He lets Teddy sit at the console, fiddle with the board. We planned the music, and I said, I said, so you hear? You hear what you, you hear? He said, oh, yeah. Oh, he was like, oh. He was getting a sensation. He was getting the burn. That you hear it, and it gives you the goosebumps. Burn, he was getting that. Working all those knobs and faders. Adjusting the treble and bass. Seeing what happens when you bring one instrument up in the mix and fade down the others. I said, turn the knob, what do you hear? And he started turning the knob, he's like, Oh, oh, yeah. Back home in the St. Nick's projects, Teddy starts dabbling in music production, too. He can't afford the same sophisticated gear he played with at the studios, but he gets what he can. A friend of mine loaned me his uh, reel-to-reel. He was one of the guys in our band. So I took it. And it was just a two-track. Not much you can do with two tracks. But Teddy figures out how to re-record on top of himself. Bouncing new parts between his two tracks, adding layer upon layer, making his little two-track tape machine sound like an orchestra. And I was just overdubbing, overdubbing. As a kid from the hood who didn't have a lot to make music. I make music with everything I could. Teddy wants more gear so he can keep creating. Meanwhile, there are still bills to pay. Teddy's got to help his mom pay rent. So what does he do? Yeah, it, it was getting in trouble. It was selling drugs. And it was, uh, by all means, necessary, you know, making a living so that my mom, because she became single mom, you know, when our dad left. So we had to figure out how to make ends meet. Every block had their own crew. And when you grow up with these guys, they become your friends. That's Timmy Gatling. He and Teddy navigated the streets together back then. So for me, I never had to be a part of standing on a corner or taking drugs anywhere. It was basically, hold this bag, Tim. Take this and put it behind the staircase until we come out, and I'll make sure you all right. It was just that simple. You didn't ask what was in the bowling bag. You didn't ask what was in the paper bag. You just took it, put it somewhere, and hit it until they came back later and said, okay, you got that for me? And then they would give you a wad of money. They would go, huh, take this. All right, see you later, buddy. Thanks. And it was just that simple. Things could have gone in a different direction for Teddy and Timmy, but they kept each other focused. We would use that to buy instruments and buy clothes. We were different, but as far as using it, we would never, ever, ever, ever engage in that. We saw too much depth and depression around us. I mean, we would go to school. You had to step over junkies every day. We knew the neighborhood winos. We told was told stories. This person used to be rich. This person used to be the big this, the big that. But then you see him on the street and go, oh, my God. 
So we did not want to be that. Timmy was one of the ones that encouraged me to stop, you know, hustling and I did it. I feel like a person who does that is a person to save your life because it could have went down different. It could have gone all bad. So I feel like, you know, Timmy was that big brother. And when I got away from hustling at an early age, I stuck to Timmy. And it wasn't just Timmy looking out for Teddy. He was hands off. This is the golden child, man. That's Barry Michael Cooper again. He says people saw Teddy's talent. The dudes from his building and all of those guys who had been in and out of jail, who were killers on the street, they looked out for this guy. When Teddy would take his Casio to places like the Wagner Projects on the east side of Harlem or up in the South Bronx, those guys went with him to make sure he never got robbed. And they escorted him there and they escorted him back home. This kid was protected. One guy in particular made Teddy feel protected. He meets him at that makeshift car wash, remember? It's right in front of an old brownstone tenement where Teddy rehearses in the basement. And one day, Teddy steps outside to get some air and to check out the line of flashy cars. And one of the drivers come up to Teddy. Big old dude, built like a linebacker. He goes, Shorty, watch my car. I'm going to take a ride up the street. And I would be, you know, the Shorty to watch his car, make sure. The guy's name is Anthony B. And he would actually give me money to pay the car wash guys. He's like, here's $100. You know, take care of them. And that's what I would do. Teddy soon learns Anthony is a very good friend to have. He was the only guy that I went out with. We would take me and Timmy and everybody would go because we knew that he was a big homie and he was most respected in the hood. This guy, my brother, was one who always looked out for me. This will be the pattern for Teddy's whole life. Tough guys clearing a path for this small, quiet kid to make his music, which is a good thing. Because the situation in the neighborhood is about to get much rougher. Oh, man. I can just give you one word. It's crack. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. There was Harlem before crack and Harlem after crack. Barry Michael Cooper is one of the first journalists to write about the crack epidemic that exploded in the mid-80s in urban areas around the country. And it wasn't just happening in Harlem. I was growing up in D.C. when crack hit there, and it changed everything. It destroyed Harlem, you know? You didn't have a lot of people who became heroin addicts 
because people are scared of needles. But in terms of smoking something and it having that kind of intoxicating effect in less than, what, 20 seconds? You know, it was like if somebody wanted to devise the perfect drug for someone to get addicted to, it was crack cocaine. Meanwhile, the drug hustlers getting rich off crack are becoming the stars of Harlem. Many of them congregate at one nightclub in particular. It's a place called The Rooftop. It was almost like the Studio 54 of Harlem for gangsters. They were revered. And I have to say the same thing for myself. I mean, I admired these guys, but I admired the way that the greater society, you know, white folks in New York, the way they looked at them. Because these dudes were dressing in Hermes. They were dressing in Louis Vuitton and Gucci. And But then I had to question myself, is this some kind of, you know, Stockholm Syndrome going on with me? Because these dudes had destroyed this neighborhood. The club's owner forms a label, Rooftop Records, builds a studio in the club. And when he needs a producer, he comes to a teenage Teddy Riley. By now, Teddy's co-produced his first hit record, a song, The Show, by a Harlem rapper named Doug E. Fresh. Excuse me, Doug E. Fresh. Yes! Have you ever seen a show when fellas on the mic with one minute rhymes that don't come out right? They fight. They never write. That's not polite. Am I lying? No, you're quite right. But at the rooftop, he gets paired up with another rapper, Cool Modi who it turns out is not down with the scene at the rooftop. I just wasn't ever comfortable with that crowd. As a matter of fact, I came up fighting drug dealers. I never knock a person for quote unquote hustling or selling drugs if it's time to eat. But that was the era where they started marketing it as a viable business or viable option. It was no longer about struggling and trying to make ends meet. It was about selling drugs to become a so-called baller, as they called it later. So he tells Teddy to meet him at a studio in Teaneck, New Jersey, instead of having anything to do with the studio at the rooftop where the gangsters are hanging out. Going in, Mo doesn't know much about Teddy as a producer. Teddy used to go around and play his music, just his keyboard, basically, in front of or try to get gigs or try to get hired and try to play at gigs that he was too young to get in. Like uh, if there's a church that had a band, he would be the keyboard player. Now, he lays out for Teddy the ideas he's got for this new track. I told him what I wanted him to play, I wanted him to hear, and I just had the drum pattern. I go to the store, I go to get something to eat. When Modi comes back, what Teddy's come up with is not what he expected. I come back to the studio and there's a bass line on it. And Teddy is moving to the bass line and looking me dead in my eyes. And I call it his, it's the Teddy Riley cell. When he sells music, he's shaking his head and squinting and making faces as the music's going on. Like he's enjoying it so much, you have to feel this. His body language is saying, you have to feel this. So I actually did feel it, and that was go see the doctor. I was walking down the street, rocking my beat, clapping my hands and stomping my feet. I saw a little lady so neat and petite. She was so sweet. Yes, I wanted to meet Okay, so lyrically speaking, go see the doctor is just a fun rhyme about a guy who has unprotected sex one night and... But three days later... Go see the doctor. But Barry Michael Cooper feels like Teddy's production makes it something more. And it's really funky. The syncopation, the don't don't, boom, boom. You didn't know what was going to happen, man. That made it a little bit exciting, foreboding. So you were dancing to it, but you were also, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? It was almost menacing. 
You know, that's what I heard. Go See the Doctor is raw, but it's also a hit. It cracks the Billboard Hot 100, a big deal for a rap track in 1986. Teddy's producing career keeps growing and growing. His apartment in St. Nick's becomes a makeshift studio. It's filled up with more sophisticated gadgets. And more and more rappers start coming around to St. Nick's to have Teddy produce their tracks. At this point, Teddy's kids at work days are far behind him. And ever since Gene Griffin got arrested, Teddy's focus has been on hip-hop, not R&B. I uh, gave up on R&B after Kids at Work. I just said, I don't want to do no more R&B. I'm going to be doing rap records for like Kumo D and B-Fats and Spoonie G and DJ Hollywood, Rob Bass and, you know, and I just left R&B alone until Key Sweat came. In 1987, Keith Sweat brings Teddy back to R&B. Sweat's a local guy and a music heartthrob in the making. Soulful eyes, short, neat, flat top, and a dapper mustache. Teddy and Keith Sweat used to play in competing local cover bands when they were kids. And even back then, Sweat was known for his sexy voice. Now he's walked the four blocks from his place in the Grant Housing Projects over to St. Nick's to join Teddy and some fellas for a game of dice. According to Teddy, he and Keith take the guy's money. And then after, they talk music. Teddy's not interested in doing R&B, but Keith says he doesn't want to do a standard R&B record. He wants hip-hop beats and church chords. When Teddy hears that, that gets him thinking. So he tells Keith, okay, give me a day. And at this time, um, I think it was evening. So I'm doing this in the evening time. And, you know, I'm I'm playing the music low because, you know, Miss Black upstairs, you know, she would bang on the dog on radiator pipes, you know, turn that music down. So I would work on my stuff at low volume. He's quietly messing with his Korg when he hits upon a beat. It's kind of a happy accident. Teddy's not sure what to think. But then his sister comes out of her room. She's nodding her head, kicking up her legs. Oh, that, yeah, she says, yeah! Teddy knows the beat is hitting. Technically, it's called a triplet swing beat. Timmy Gatling says, he and Teddy had once tried a similar kind of beat for a kids at work song. And Teddy was playing around with the beat machine that they had at the studio. And I said, Teddy, don't just play a straight up beat. Why don't we just shuffle it? We didn't say swing it. It was like shuffle it. And that was the first, but that was like the embryo. Nobody knew it, you know? At the time, nobody said, oh, it's a swing beat. He says they didn't think much of it at the time. But this time, for Keith Sweat's song, I Want Her, Teddy hears it. Ooh. It's the beat you hear in My Prerogative, that you hear in Groove Me, that you hear later in Poison. And not too long after that, as Teddy puts the finishing touches on Keith Sweat's I Want Her, that's when Timmy Gatling walks into the studio with a singer he just met named Aaron Hall and presents him with the idea for a band they'll call Guy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. 
Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Teddy Riley's in the studio mixing I Want Her when Timmy Gatling and Aaron Hall walk in. You know, he said, man, you need to hear him sing. And I said, cool. Now, you've heard this part of the story before. This is the beginning of Guy. Timmy asked, he said, okay, what do you think? He asked me what I think about being in the group. To hear Teddy tell it, he was definitely blown away by Aaron's voice. But he was also a little cautious to jump in with both feet. And I said, I don't know, you know, like, where would we go for a deal? Like, and then he started coming up with ideas. In Teddy's version, Timmy kind of has to sell Teddy on the idea of joining Guy, which makes sense. Because at this point, Teddy's producing career is building. He's already scored hits with Dougie Fresh and Cool Modi. And he has a really good feeling about the Keith Sweat track he's mixing right now. Teddy doesn't really need to be in another group, especially with Timmy. Because in their former group, Kids at Work... It didn't work because I kind of follow what Timmy said, you know, and what Corell said, because they were the oldest and, you know, they were like my older brothers. So whatever they said, you know, I did it. Now Teddy's his own man. But that brotherly bond with Tim is still strong. And he sees the potential. So Teddy agrees. He'll join Guy. Then not long after, Teddy finishes up Keith Sweat's debut album and its lead single, I Want Her, drops. And it's gonna put Teddy on a whole nother level. It's 107.5 WBLS. That is part of record number one. No more voting on record number one. In New York in 1987, DJ Frankie Crocker rules the airwaves on WBLS, one of New York's top stations. He and his listeners can determine whether a new single is a hip or a flop with a segment he calls Make It or Break It. It's 10 minutes now before 8 o'clock. We're playing Make It or Break It. The telephone number is 212-955-WBLS. Say make it if you like it. Say break it if you don't. I told you I was going to do it. Here is record number two. It's the moment of truth. Will Frankie Crocker's listeners make I Want Her? Love it. Or break it? You're kidding me. The phones light up. It's a landslide decision. They break it. Damn. But then... Crocker does something that almost never happens. He basically decides, you know what? You people are wrong. I like this track, and I'm going to play it anyway. For Teddy, it's the beginning of a whirlwind. At almost the same time he's finishing I Want Her, he starts applying the same New Jack sound to guys' songs and to a jam for an R.B. singer named Johnny Kemp called Just Got Paid. Groove Me and I Wanna and Just Got Paid are those three records, are the records that I felt in my heart was something special. I Want Her hits number one on the R&B charts and number five on the Billboard Hot 100. The others chart too, and Teddy Riley is the toast of the town. 
Right around that time in New York City, an old friend of Teddy's experiences that for herself. We were out at a club, and I believe it was the Celebrity Club. Marsha McClurkin. She's last seen Teddy in Harlem years back before she moved from Harlem to Brooklyn, which in New York in the 80s means she may as well have moved to Mars. The DJ there would always put me on the list to get in. DJ Sugar Daddy. So we were in the um, club and he actually announced that he was going to play this song and it happened to have been Keith Sweat's I Want Her. So everyone's playing it. It was really nice. And I was like, oh, that's a really, really nice song. And then right behind there, he said, then we have one more song we want to play by this gentleman. And then he played uh, Johnny Kemp's Just Got Paid. And then he announced, hey, yeah, and that's from the, this producer. He's going to be doing big things, Teddy Riley. And I was like, oh, my God, Teddy's here? She peers through the dancing crowd, and there he is back by the DJ booth. And when he turned, he looked, and I'm, I was, like, just waving at him like crazy. And he first he had a little puzzled look, and then he recognized who I was and was like, oh, my God. Shouting over his music, Teddy and Marsha excitedly catch each other up on their lives. Teddy's a member of God now. And then he says, okay, well, then, are you still singing? And I said, yes. And then Teddy said, well... I'm putting together a girl group, and I think you would be perfect for it. The idea at the time is to create an all-female mirror image of Guy. He goes, but you'll have to audition. And I said, well, I don't have a problem with that. They make plans to set up the audition. A few weeks later, Teddy's going to ask her out on a date, too. But today, that's going to have to wait, because Teddy Riley's got a lot of work to do. He keeps cranking out hits. He produces a few songs with a hip-hop crew called Heavy D and the Boys. Their debut album charts. A week after its release comes Cool Mo D's next album. And Teddy's work is all over that too. It hits number four on the R&B charts. Keith Sweat, Johnny Kemp, Cool Mo D. Seems like everything Teddy touches becomes a hit. And this is all happening in a crazy short span of time. He's also making the guy record at this time. But they haven't dropped a single yet. Phew! So that's what's going on with Teddy when Timmy Gatling begins to notice that Guy's manager, Gene Griffin, is starting to take a special interest in Teddy. Then I was confused, but looking back on it now, it was publishing. Publishing. The way the music industry pays royalties to songwriters. Teddy's an artist, not a businessman. And he doesn't even realize how much money his publishing is generating. Teddy didn't know his work. Teddy was doing all these songs for other rap artists and whatever, and they would just pay Teddy cash and give Teddy a credit. Teddy didn't know nothing about publishing. So looking back on it, that's what Gene was after. So he really made himself a part of Gene and played that far. He, at first, he played that big brother father figure to all of us. Seems like the more hits Teddy produces, the more he's the focus of Gene's attention. Timmy's fiance Veronica, sees the writing on the wall almost before Tim does. Teddy was making pretty good money for a young guy at, you know, again, 1920. And when Gene saw that he could control all of that, his wolf nature emerged. And Tim had begun to ask a lot of questions. And Tim is very vocal and he's very much a papa bear when it comes to his ideas and his thoughts and especially Guy. And so... 
Tim was asking all the right questions at the wrong time, if you can get that. Because by now, as far as Gene's concerned, Timmy is expendable, or worse, a threat to him. And as for Teddy, to hear him talk about it, you can kind of see why he didn't stand in Gene's way. Well, I'll tell you this, and Timmy and I talk about it all the time. He is more of a control freak. And I don't say that in a bad way, because Timmy is, that's my brother. But now, you know, I'll say that Timmy is, he was a control freak. And that was the reason why I did everything he asked me to do. And even with playing notes, because, he, you know, Timmy is a guy, he feel like, I know this. So do it this way. Try it this way. If you try it this way, and I'll try it this way and kind of improvise and make it sound right so it doesn't make it look like he look, he's wrong. And um, that was just me as a little brother. You know, I, I was the one to make music work for us. From Timmy's perspective, Teddy's decision to continue Guy without him, <sighs> that stinks. I was the first one to told Teddy, mix that hip-hop with R&B, Teddy. It's never been done. Mix it. We could blend it together. We could make it. I can't. I wrote all of the songs, all of the lyrics. I arranged everything with Teddy. I was picking and choosing which beats go on the song. I played the bass lines to all of the songs. So to be removed from that, that broke my heart. Who's responsible for the New Jack sound? Was it that shuffle beat back in the kids at work days? Teddy's work with Keith Sweat? Who influenced what and when? Would New Jack Swing have been created if Teddy Riley never got together with Timmy Gatling? For Gene and the music industry, anyway, the answer's clear. Here's how musician and producer Royal Bayan puts it. This is the deal. Timmy would like to say that he created God, and he's the person who really created it all. Okay, you might have brought three people together, all right? But the actual creation, in my humble opinion, happened when Teddy created that sound, all right? You're talking to Andre Harrell and all those type of folks, whatever. They are, they're only going to focus on where the talent is. They're not, you know, they're not looking at you and saying, oh, okay, we, we're loyal to you. It's about where the talent was. Where was the talent? Was with, with Teddy. And Timmy also had talent, but he wasn't Teddy. By 1988, Timmy is out. Gene is back. And Teddy? Well, Teddy Riley is the golden child. That little kid who danced on stage at the Apollo with Gladys Knight, who dreamed of being a star, is grown. And he's made it. He's gonna be a superstar. And that's when the problems in the group really begin. So we get in the elevator. We get in the elevator and go down. And then he just fell into my arms and like, yo, Gene smacked the shit out of me. That's on the next episode of Jacked. From Wondery and Universal Music Group, this is episode three of six of Jacked. If you want to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to binge ad-free. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. Jacked is hosted and produced by me, Taraji P. Henson. 
Andy Herman and Rico Galliano wrote and produced this story. Consulting creative producer is Timmy Gatling. Associate producer is Melissa Duenez. Fact-checking by Sarah McClure. Consulting producer is Barry Michael Cooper. Managing producer is Lutha Pandya. Music supervision and sound design by Marcelino Villalpando. Sound design and mixing by Jeff Schmidt. Executive produced by Barrick Moffitt and Daniel Seliger for UMG. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marsha Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, listeners, it's Will Arnett. Our podcast, Smartless, has crossed a milestone that seemed unfathomable when we started nearly four years ago as we've just released our 200th episode. Join us as we welcome that dynamic duo of hilarity, Steve Martin and Martin Short. You've seen them on screen together in The Three Amigos, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, and most recently, and Only Murders in the Building. Both are comedic geniuses in their own right, but together they are always electric. And this episode of Smartless is no exception. I don't know if I've laughed more in a single episode than this one. We discuss their career arcs both separately and as a comedy team, how they met, who is more difficult to work with, and what motivates them today. Is Steve a better banjo player than Marty as a singer? Find out on this bicentennial episode of Smartless. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Plus, you get to hear Sean cry. What a loser. I have missed these Friday night dinners. Mm. Welcome to Harvey Gras. At these family dinners, everyone. dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we embarrass you? It's already better than I dared to dream. They're extra. Let the wild rumpus start! Woo, 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 woo. And they're embarrassing. We know how hard it is to move on from the first girl that you ever slept with. Not the first girl who I ever slept yeah, with. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. You're a regular lady killer. I thought you said it was going to be boring here tonight. No! I really hope it would be. But they couldn't love each other more. Surprise! Mom and Dad being totally normal. Wow. So, dinner next Friday, everyone? Wouldn't miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream free only on Freebie.